Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So I'm just going to introduce John Gapper, who's the chief business commentator of the Financial Times, to chair this next session. The Financial Times are our chief media partner, not just of names, not numbers, but of editorial intelligence more broadly for 2011 and 2012. Um, John has authored some books, including with Nick Denton of Gorka, All That Glitters, the account of the collapse of Bearings Bank. But he is one of the FT's most senior and experienced writers and Really, any, anyone who was as excited as I was by hearing Seth Godin is excited to read John Gapper because he gets under the skin of business and the culture of business. And I still think his article about Nespresso about 18 months ago is one of my favorite pieces of business writing um, just because it actually made me want to go and buy this machine um, as a result of his writing must be the old PR in me. So, John Gapper, introduce your chair, your panel, please. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. I should say it's a tribute to Julia that um, I refuse to accept any appointments on a Tuesday because I'm supposed to be writing my column. In fact, I'm supposed to be writing my column now. So it is a tribute to Julia <laughs> that I'm here. <laughs> um, we, um, we have a great panel. Um, we also have a nicely, creatively ambiguous title. Uh, is it about how businesses should be creative, or is it about how creative people should be businesslike? Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is, and I've asked one or two members of my panel, and they don't quite know either. So we'll, we'll find out. Um, we've got a terrific set of people. I'm not going to introduce them individually, uh, because you can all read, or at least I assume you can all read. Um, but let's just briefly give my interpretation of how they might have something to say about creativity. Rob runs a cheese business, which is, has brought individuality to what used to be a heavily packaged business in uh, the US. Gail has written about creativity under the most challenging of circumstances. Uh, women in Afghanistan running a dressmaking business. Uh, Catherine thrives by bringing creativity to New York in the form of film and television, and I, I think she's successfully managed to drain film location shooting out of most other American cities, at least to judge by the number of film shoots that are on the streets around Brooklyn, where I live. And Lucy tells us um, and consults on and advises people on creativity in what you would have thought is the least creative place on earth, the boardroom. And Matthew is Matthew. <laughs> and I'm, and uh, I've been crowdsourcing the moderation on this panel by, by uh, bringing in Matthew as well. So we'll start with Matthew. Um, Matthew, creativity in business or business-like behavior in creativity, which do you think is more difficult? Well, uh, I, thanks, John, for that full and uh, glowing introduction. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I just want to respond to what Seth was saying as a way of answering, trying to answer your question. I agreed with most of what Seth had to say, but I had one fundamental disagreement with, with what he had to say. So the bit I agreed with was that 
you know, the future. We've all, all got to be much more entrepreneurial. Um, you know, I, I think entrepreneurship is the, the big discovery of the last, the rediscovery of the last 25 years. It's the reason uh, why the, the sexy people in business, the people who have plenty of time to sleep with everyone like they used to do in uh, Mad Men are now the entrepreneurs rather than the uh, company men um, and women. Um, it's the reason why all the people who want to change the world, who I write about in philanthropic capitalism, call themselves social entrepreneurs, um, or uh, increasingly just the whole entrepreneurial world is now getting social in terms of its mission. Um, you know, I think that's the thing people want to be because it is creativity. I was talking to Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn the other day. He's writing a book called something like Be Your Own Startup, the whole gist of which is how your whole career you have to think of as if you're an entrepreneur um, in every aspect of your life. The way I, where I disagree um, with Seth is in his title, which, is, uh, which assumes that the Industrial Revolution is over. And, and he reaches that conclusion because he defines the Industrial Revolution as a, a thing where you're in a job where you're told what to do. Um, now, my view of the Industrial Revolution is not about command and control, but it's fundamentally about the way we organize ourselves as a society in ways that allowed us to take good ideas and deliver them on a massive scale through the systems that we created. And to my mind, what we're seeing is just the next phase of the Industrial Revolution, which is that the systems that we're evolving as a society are now evolving again to allow a greater expression of individual creativity and entrepreneurship. Now, I think parts of that system are evolving much better than other bits. And so I think that um, where it's failing to evolve is actually, ironically, at the place where uh, much of the power and magic of, of, of scale resides, which is in the capital, the use of how, how our capital system works. So um, the capital system that we have, we have bits of it that are extremely effective, like parts of the venture capital industry, um, but if I talk to my friends who are social entrepreneurs, they can't get, there's no, there's no sort of capital curve to a better world. Another thing I've written about, that you can't steadily have a good social entrepreneurial idea and figure out how to get to scale and get the right sort of money at the right point in the development of your organization. And then you look at the for-profit business world where you know, there's plenty of creativity. Wall Street was extremely creative uh, with derivatives and all sorts of things in the, the run-up to the financial crash, but fundamentally the whole system is incredibly short-term orientated. There is, you, know, you get capital to do stuff that delivers quick returns, but fundamentally long-term beneficial creativity that really improves the world. Uh, the system has become ever more short-term focused. And I think there are all sorts of um, issues that we need to address about how that system works and how can we get it uh, to work in our interest, because it is, after all, our money. Um, and I think the only way in which, for example, social media seems to have affected the capitalist system uh, is in the advent of day trading, which was about the silliest uh, activity that I could imagine other than playing a one-armed bandit in a Vegas casino. And when did you last hear from any place where you put your long-term savings in a way that actually engaged you in a, a social media way? Um, do, do they tweet these pension funds and things that, where we've trusted our money? Have you ever written to them by email or engaged in a lobbying campaign to get them to enforce the 
UN principles for responsible investment, for example. I don't know. Nothing, this seems to be an entirely immune area to any of this stuff that we've all been excited about for the last half hour. So, yes, this is the world of entrepreneurship, but I think if we don't address how our capital markets work um, and how the system works, fundamentally, um, you know, the evolution that Seth was talking about is going to be a lot less positive and beneficial and satisfying and slower than um, it ought to, ought to be. Well, you raised a very interesting point. Uh, we'll come back to some of those thoughts on capital structure, but you raised an interesting point towards the beginning of your remarks about where people think of creativity these days, and it's in the, the idea of entrepreneurship and being a tech startup and all of that. Uh, when I grew up, the idea of starting a small business sounded very, very dull, and the idea that the best idea was to go and do a creative job in a large organization. You'd have be well-paid, have freedom. That seems to have changed. Rob, you tell us a bit about your cheese business, because um, that seems to be an eccentric thing to do for a start, um, and yet you've brought entrepreneurship to a, a rather unentrepreneurial culture. Well, I, I Maybe don't... culture is a pun, in the case of... <laughs> I get it. <laughs> and we have a lot of kinds of breed, too. Um, actually, when he was talking about the shower, you know, running over us and most of the drops that don't hit, I was thinking about taking all these 15 types of rehome and sort of, you know, warming them up and settling in a nice bathroom. Instead of in any event, um, um, thank you, Julia, I want to say that, for having a wonderful conference, the lovely Julia. As they say here in uh, Manhattan, well done you. In any event, um, yeah, well, for me, it wasn't a choice. I think a lot of it is just not, you know, it's not, it's not something you consciously choose to do. Cheese, for example. I also had a romantic vision of a mom-and-pop store, but there is no question about it that it's uh, the mom-and-pop stores, like the ones in our neighborhood down in the village, were, uh, were and are going out of business frequently and rapidly, so we have to constantly reinvent ourselves, and that's the hard part. Um, there's no question also that, as Matthew said, there is a misallocation of capital. I mean, we have a, a, our bank is HSBC, and we have a $100,000 line of credit. That's after 20 straight years of record sales and earnings. We have a million and a half dollars sitting there in the various accounts as we speak, and we still only have a $100,000 line of credit. So therefore, in order to have any growth at all, and I do believe that in our system, you are either growing or going out of business, Unfortunately, I don't think it's uh, sustainable in the sense that we use it in the, in the food sense of the word, um, that uh, we have to be creative in, in that and how we uh, grow the business. In our case, uh, we've discussed, you know, we've entered into strategic partnerships. Uh, one is with our nation's largest supermarket chain, Kroger. They came to us and asked us if we'd consider putting shops within shops in some of their upscale stores across the country. They have 3,000 stores. We do $85 billion, and we said no, because that seemed to be the only sensible thing to tell them. But eventually, we, you know, they wore us down, and we said yes. Uh, but we had to figure out how to do it first, and we figured out how to do it. And so at the end of this year, we'll have 42 of them. And then recently, we've just... And, and, and the point is that it's their capital, their labor, their inventory. But why do you think that they came to you? Why, do, why does a large company like Kroger say, we want some nice cheese... Why don't they just go out and buy some? Why do, why do they have to come to you for it? Um, cheese happened to be one of those fortunate categories in food that's growing specialty cheese in double digits right through the recession. So um, 
supermarkets copycat each other, and they knew they needed to be in cheese. But they, they had gone somebody to, who can manage this or, or they'd offer all, it or in some way that they can't do themselves. So that they sounds like a very uncreative business. That's absolutely true, and, and they're smart enough to realize that. There's whole areas where large corporations just can't seem to generate the uh, entrepreneurial zeal, you will, the passion, I suppose, you know, to, uh, to you know, overcome their own inertia. They try all the usual means. And they don't work, and so eventually, in desperation, I suppose, they turn to uh, small companies like ours. So that's working out very well. And then the other one that we're doing with uh, has to do with the internet, and that's with uh, you know another startup company uh, called uh, Gilt. Uh, we, you know, which is selling. Well, now they've gone into food, so we're their cheese purveyors, and that's working out very well for us, too. I suppose, in, in you know, once upon a time, we would have had access to some sort of capital, but, uh, but now, you know, these strategic partnerships are, you know, paving the way for us to help us reinvent aspects of our business. Okay, but, but we talked at the beginning about whether or not large businesses can be creative or businesses can make themselves creative, and you're sort of saying, well, they can't really. Um, they don't know how to do it. So what is it that you do with your cheese that Kroger's can't do? And why, why can you do it and Kroger's can't do it? I think that what we do, I, I think that a lot of these things, you know, it is the information age, but it's also the age um, of the craftsperson, the return to crafts. You know, there may be virtual cheese, but nobody wants to eat it. So, you know, we, we've got to go with the real thing. And so consequently, uh, the, it starts to involve elements of uh, passion, uh, um, knowledge, uh, things that... Uh, perhaps people aren't as uh, inclined towards as we might be, because these are very sort of quirky activities. Most of the people that I know, the chefs, do things, you know, for peculiar reasons. As you, you called it eccentric. I'm not so sure it's eccentric. You know, people do these things because they're driven to do them, even as peculiar as cheese. Some of the women yesterday were about to, you know, left their jobs and were going out to make some movies about some very interesting subjects, I thought. You know, people are driven to do these things, and... Uh, but, you know, to Kroger's credit, you know, they, 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 they realize it and they want to stay in business and they realize there's a creative and a destructive element, so they go, they outsource it and, and, and it works. But when they do it themselves, it doesn't work. I'm okay. not sure why. But you've also built a great brand in New York. And okay. I think that, uh, you know, you see the Murray's name and, you know, they see that you have a local neighborhood cheese shop that's a specialty cheese shop, that suddenly you've figured it out. You've marketed yourself very well. They want a part of that. So by collaborating with you, it helps take them to another level as well. Well, thank you. You've answered the question better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's fine. They like um, the Gail, uh, when we talk about entrepreneurship, a lot of people talk about, um, well, it's risk-taking. You put up capital or you get somebody else to put up capital and it, you might fail. Um, but that's about the worst that can happen. Uh, um, now, in Afghanistan, that's not the worst that can happen, actually. A lot worse than that can happen. And yet, you've written extensively about businesses involving women who've decided to set up dressmaking uh, companies under the most adverse and challenging of circumstances with the Taliban looking over their shoulder. So, can you tell us more about why they do that? Sure. I think the same... I think there's interesting dynamic because I wrote this book called The Dressmaker of Karkana, which is about a young girl whose business supported women all around her neighborhood under the Taliban. And when I uh, started 
to report on women entrepreneurs. It was supposed to be a post-Taliban story for the Financial Times in 2005. And I met this young woman who talked to me about why she had just said no to a job with the international community that would have paid her about 2,000 U.S. per month. And it was because, in her view, it was entrepreneurship that was going to make a difference for Afghanistan. And that entrepreneurship is what was going to create a stable environment and prosperity that would allow them to one day stand on its own. And when I asked her how she knew this much about business, she looked at me as if it were completely natural and said, oh, well, it was actually the Taliban years that made me an entrepreneur because I had this great business uh, that supported women all around my neighborhood. And it was really that experience that taught me about the power of business to create jobs and to make change. And to your point, Matthew, about entrepreneurship, I wonder if what has changed is us. Because we are now looking at these stories and finding them extraordinary. Whereas I think a decade ago, two decades ago, people were not necessarily thinking that these stories were interesting or sexy. And certainly on the ground, in tough parts of the world, people do not think that what they're doing is extraordinary. And oftentimes, women don't think that what they're doing is entrepreneurship. And I think it's a question of how we define it and where we see the creativity. I mean, in my view, the fact that these young women under the Taliban could take their set of circumstances and which is, first of all, women couldn't work outside the home, so if you have a home-based business, that's an advantage. Male tailors can't make dresses for women under the Taliban's rules because you have to be a family member. So there's an advantage. There's an opportunity for women, right? Women seamstresses. The third thing was that, you know, no matter how bad things got, women still wanted to look good. And that was the third opportunity. So you had young women who were supposed to be teachers or professors or lawyers who ended up becoming entrepreneurs because nothing else was left open to them. And in my view, it's the ultimate in terms of entrepreneurial creativity. But I think that our narrative often is that these women are victims and not survivors. And I think that that has to change because people do not invest in victims. I think there's an interesting point you make, though, about the media's attention to this. Yeah. Because I think, in some ways, there are two types of entrepreneur. And that's the reason why I was talking about scale. Because, you know, the countries that come out top in the uh, GEMS monitor of who has the highest percentage of the population that, with entrepreneurs tend to be the most dysfunctional countries in terms of delivering well-being and progress. And so, you know, you, there's a tendency, particularly in the non-profit sector, to find little examples that basically are heroic but achieve no impact whatsoever and to celebrate them and give people awards and things. But the real question in a lot of these countries is how do you create the capacity to, to deliver lots of jobs at a large scale that really creates wealth? And you know, I think you know, we need to actually differentiate between those two different sorts of entrepreneurship. Well, I think that you can, but I do think that one starts with the entrepreneurial drive and so does the other. Right? And so I think that sometimes people in rich countries tend to see people who do small startups as exceptions or sort of cute stories. Um, but I think that the entrepreneurial drive is the same. And the question is, where do you invest resources and attention um, from the international community perspective, right? And I think that 
there is to this distinction between the policy people and the business people, right? And never the twain shall meet. I do think that we will reach a point where they will come together because some of these opportunities will be attractive for the business people to cross over into that world. And I think that they have to stop being um, cute stories that make people feel good because the truth is that they are also business stories. And sometimes I think that because they are women, they become cuter. And this is sort of one of those things that we, we did a Harvard Business School case around the book and sort of forced people to have this discussion. And they said, well, I think some of this discussion about women's entrepreneurship is rubbish. And I said, I could not agree more. And when the playing field is level, we won't have to have the discussion. But you made, you made an interesting point there about the ambition of uh, the women that you talked to, that they, that they not only wanted to run their own business and have that satisfaction, but they actually wanted to change society. And I sometimes wonder whether or not we're looking at a world, the Silicon Valley world, in which you can make a billion dollars and change the world simultaneously. Uh, and people in Silicon Valley often talk in those terms. Well, that's a wonderful thing. If you can do both of those things, it's tremendously creative and tremendously rewarding. How many of us are really going to have that opportunity of doing both those things, becoming rich? Most small businesses collapse. Uh, most small businesses maybe aren't that creative or not that extraordinary. I mean, Rob, what do you think? Yes, most, thing, most businesses aren't that extraordinary. That's true. But Are they still satisfying, even if they're not extraordinary? Well, I think that's why, you know, we're not just in the information age here. I mean, the world I live in is a different world. It is a world of people going back to farms, chefs opening restaurants, whether they fail or not. Um, you know, interest in land, food, sustainability, things my wife Nina talked about a little bit yesterday in the farm markets. You know, they are more interested in crafts and, and, and working with your hands. And some, you know, there's a sort of a retro element, you know, to the age that, 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 that I'm living in. You know, the, the next business we're looking at, you know, at Murray's, for example, um, you know, is our grilled cheese sandwiches. We open a grilled cheese sandwich thing in the front of the store, and, it's, and we have lines every day. So it's grilled cheese sandwich. Or grilled cheese. Grilled. Well, American style, you know, where there's butter on the outside. But isn't there a line? Really isn't there a silly right, really company that's just it's a not like toasted funding cheese. for British a grilled cheese company? Oh, yeah, yeah. Bacon and, you know, a lot of pork involved. So, um, you know, and so there is a return to these sort of crafts, hands-on. And anybody can do those things. Anybody can learn those skill sets. You know, it might be that the main problem is that everybody, you know, went to work in an office or at a desk. That was my problem, you know, that was one of my main objectives was to get away from wearing a suit and tie and having to work behind a desk. It was too boring. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of kids, you know, I can see it in my own children. You know, it's very unlikely that they're going to wind up in any of those traditional jobs. Right. And um, let's just turn to New York for a minute since we're here. Um, New York's put a huge amount of effort into drawing creative businesses to be here. Um, to film here, to do projects here, not just actually in the media business, but in the tech business and so forth. Why is it so important? Well, I think that uh, Mayor Bloomberg came in right after 9-11 and made it very clear that we needed to diversify the city's economy. Number one priority was to make New York safe, and he's done a great job with Ray Kelly of doing that. We're the safest big city in the entire country. But it's also got to be attractive to people to come to visit, 
to live and to develop their businesses here. Um, he always also felt very passionate that we couldn't just focus on Wall Street and look at what happened in 2008. You know, he called it way before that. So it's been really important to support arts, culture, entertainment, to look at the bioscience industry, now looking at IT, um, and really diversify the city's economy and position the city for the next change. Um, I look after the Mayor's Office of Film, Theater, and Broadcasting, which is the oldest film commission in the world. And it's a very important business for New York. It employs roughly 100,000 New Yorkers, brings in about $5 billion a year, and supports about 4,000 ancillary businesses. Um, but it's also a great business to have in the city because it creates excitement. And it's also advertising that we can't buy. You know, Sunday morning, this past Sunday morning, we had a, a film shoot, a new Sasha Baron Cohen film, and so he wanted to recreate a parade on Fifth Avenue. Very, very early Sunday morning, we had six camels, a fleet of Maseratis and Lamborghinis, and, uh, and Rolls Royces, and they recreated this parade uh, on, on Fifth Avenue in the early morning hours. Simultaneously, we had Men in Black 3 down in Battery Park, and they're, uh, it's, a retro, it's a bit of a retro piece. They're going back in time to 1969. So the streets around Battery Park were filled with these retro cars and people dressed up. So we facilitate that kind of production. So as tourists are walking around town, they see this. It's the excitement, the, you know, the creativity that's there. But it's also when these films are created and distributed around the world, it's advertising we can't buy. I mean, look at the Sex in the City series, the movie, and of course it lives on in syndication. But it just reinforces all of the businesses and the wonderful things about New York, and people around the world want to come and visit the city of New York. With 48.5 million tourists last year, we're trying to do our part to bring more people here to enjoy the businesses that are here, to start their own business, and to live here. Okay. Lucy, let's just turn to you. Um, you deal and advise and are involved with boards of companies, some large, some small. Um, what are your observations in terms of the degree to which businesses at that level, at that very senior level, want to be creative and can be creative? Well, I think the potential is there. I mean, you know, I, as a director sitting in the boardroom, you, know, you have a choice. I think for all of us, it's fairly black box. You know, we look at that that room, and it's basically a closed-door world, and we don't know what's going on behind the doors. And I always had this sort of fantasy that it was a little like King Arthur and the Round Table, you know, and sort of being our best selves, and, you know, wise people would go in, and the door would whoosh, closed, and people would sit around the room, and they would have big discussions. They were very wise, big discussions with big ideas and big thoughts, and they would be chivalrous and good and kind, and they would speak in a funny sort of these and thous kind of language, and that then the door would open, whoosh, and they would go forth and build big businesses and you know, strong economies and be kind and good to their communities and their stakeholders. And, um, and, and, and I had to describe this because I, I was describing it to my five-year-old because he wanted to know what I was going to talk about the last time I was in New York. And, and, so, and he's a little British child, and... You know, and so he, he likes King Arthur and the round table, and he's going, that sounds fantastic, Mummy. And I said, but then Mummy went into the boardroom and discovered that actually it wasn't like that, that actually they do talk in these and thous, and the door is closed. But a lot of what was happening there was very much about tactics and about checkboxes and sort of driven 
from fear versus a, a growth agenda. But I actually think that the vision that I had is the right one, that actually we should be wanting our businesses. I mean, most people do work in large organizations. They are the things that drive our economies. And I myself think of myself as entrepreneurial, but you know, large organizations, be they NGOs, be they the church, be they anything, these are big organizations that are driving the way that we do our business. So the question is, you know, now that we have some transparency into the boardroom, a little peek into what happens in there, is that okay? And I think the answer would have to be no. But I think the reason that we have to think about this and we have to think about do we legislate for it, you know, are we activist shareholders, do we use social media as a means of driving that agenda, um, the answer has to be yes, that we need all of that, because as directors, as a director in the boardroom, I need to have higher expectations of myself and of the people who sit around that table. And, and we do it because of a growth agenda, because these businesses are the engine for the development of our economy. And, 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 it's, and it's important for us, to, you know, with the theme of creativity, it's important for us to think creatively. I mean, I push myself to do that in ways that I hadn't thought of, like I was in London recently and I had a a series of, you know, I sort of do these back-to-back -back meetings, and, uh, and I had the choice of about 15 minutes to go to one of a couple of clubs, but I was standing next to the National Gallery. And so instead, I thought, well, that's convenient. I'll just walk into the National Gallery. And all of a sudden, walking around the National Gallery, it was like a brain refreshment. It was, you know, I, I put aside what I was thinking about, and all of a sudden, it had sort of jiggled me out of my malaise, in a way. And I think that... You know, when we separate, you know, listening to the panels yesterday, I found that interesting. Coming to things like this, I find it interesting. It's the reason that we do things like that. And in a way, we divide ourselves, you know, as if it was businesses here and arts and right. culture are here. But isn't, there, but isn't, aren't a lot of boards moving in precisely the opposite direction? Uh, isn't, aren't a lot of people on boards beating up their audit committees and trying to stop bad things happen? Uh, and on don't you think all the time, if you're the director of a, on, on a board of a large company, actually what really concerns me is that this thing's not going to blow up and I'm not going to be on the front pages of the paper. So I'd prefer it to be as, as little creative as possible. I'd just like it to run smoothly. It's counterintuitive. I mean, I, look, I, I chair audit committees. I love the audit committee. I mean, you know, I, so I, I know that sounds strange, but actually numbers to me tell a story. I think it's a veriful, very powerful place to be on a, on a board. So we should all love the audit committee. <laughs> It's, and, I, and, and, of course, I believe in creativity in the boardroom. The only place I don't think we should have creativity is actually in the audit committee. <laughs> That's the one place that I would discourage creativity. On the other hand, we need to think differently about what happens in that room. If you have dynamism in the boardroom and diversity in the boardroom in that small D sense, that you, know, you don't have an entire room full of Eton-educated, Cambridge-educated, white, old guys basically, you know, there's no diversity, there's no dynamism, there's no discussion. And that is dangerous. Because if the people in the boardroom actually don't understand what's happening today, so if they're all dictating letters to their secretaries, because that's their form of communication, then actually how can they even predict what's going to happen 20 years from now? They won't even be alive 20 years from now. So how can they know, if they don't know what's happening today, what's going to happen tomorrow? So actually, in order to manage risk, in order to mitigate risk, which everyone's worried about in the boardroom, the safest thing, to my mind, is to have all the people from this room in the boardroom. Because 
that's how we're going to plan for the future. You know, the things that we're talking about, I get very excited. So, <laughs> you know, the boardroom is exciting because well, the Well, I agree that we should all be appointed to boards immediately. But, um, but I've just been reading a rather interesting book by Bob Lutz, who is the vice chairman of um, General Motors, and I think is widely acknowledged to be complete, even by himself, to be crazy. And um, like that guy. And it's a very entertaining book as a result. But, but his basic thesis is that what went wrong with GM, which I think we can all agree was a disastrous corporation, was that the creative people, the people who used to design the Cadillacs with fins and so forth, got pushed down by all the finance people and the MBA people and the product development and engineering people, and the entire thing reversed. And what he's basically saying is there are two types of people. There's creative people and there's people who do controls. Now, we seem to be encouraging people increasingly, like everybody should be creative, but maybe some people aren't suited to that. Well, here's the thing. You need to have a voice in the boardroom sitting as a director because directors are arrogant. And if you don't actually have someone at the table, you can have someone come in who's the design person and talk about it, or you can have someone come in who's the social media person and talk about it. But unless it's actually sitting across from you all the time and it infuses the discussion on a regular basis, nothing's going to happen. And, and therefore, the diversity that I'm talking about is you need a 40-year-old international experienced uses Twitter person, but you also need a 65 or 70-year-old who has seen the business running for a long time and understands the continuity of it. So there is room for both, and that's part of the dynamism that happens in the boardroom. And you can either have um, an, a, a consent agenda, which is basically tick, 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 and thank you for coming, let's go and have lunch. You can have a discussion agenda, which is all discussion, discussion, and discussion, and heat. But you can also have balance of both, and you need both. You need the audit committee, and you also need the strategic thinking. And it's that balance and the power of those voices and a strong chair who understands how to work the room. And Pat knows she sits on boards. You know, you need both of those things. The power comes from actually both of those things coming together in an organized way. Again, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I think that, again, thinking about how in the media we cover business, I mean, we buy completely into this, the CEO is the only person... It matters. You never get the whole board sitting there taking interviews. And, well, I don't, think, I don't yeah. think we're actually ever offered the chance to of course you're not offered the sit chance. and have an interview with the whole board. You're a journalist. Whatever. Don't wait. <laughs> no, but I mean, if we ask to speak to the board, often companies say, well, no, the board don't speak to journalists. Yeah. Um, well, they do speak they, to journalists. They then will they refer get us to the PR person <laughs> who will tell us that they don't. I mean, the point is, we've, accept, we've got a system that accepts this CEO centric command and control thing that. You know, we don't really have a serious debate about it's the lazy. diversity of the board, whether the board is working properly. And you're, it's not lazy, actually. Uh, it it's it's institutionalized. Um, you know, we should maybe start a campaign, Twitter, and so, so forth, to get But you're talking about entrepreneurship. Be, we need to be more entrepreneurial. You know, Kathy, hey, come on, both know, does pensions... Get out of that office. Do some work. I mean, I, I really think we have to challenge ourselves. I challenge myself as a director. It Stop sheltering be behind the anonymity of the economist. It would be easy to sit in the boardroom and do the tick, tick, tick. I would get paid just as much as I did that if I did something else. But is that really why I'm there? Right. I mean, you know, is that really what's the best thing for all of us? Can I ask another question, which is, it, it strikes me that um, we talked a little bit 
here about the sort of the drive people have to be creative that it's not just about money it's about self-fulfillment and about about doing something you talked about people don't even have a choice at some level they just have to do those things but but if we take a step back we're in a world where there seems to be a, a, an absolute crisis of um, the creative industries actually getting rewarded either through piracy or through or through the fact that everybody's out there and the old distribution channels, as Seth talked about, the old distribution monopolies have broken down, so everybody can Twitter or make cheese or whatever, and, and often the cheese is quite good. So, so therefore, the professionals that used to control the guilds, that's all broken down. So if you look at the world, it doesn't, although we're all being told to be creative, it doesn't seem like a recipe for actually making much money anymore. It's, is that true? Is it true that we're making money anymore? We yeah, are. I mean, people, people may be very satisfied uh, and they may be expressing themselves through cooking or twittering or journalism or blogging or whatever, but they don't seem to be making as much money as they used to from those things. I have no idea. I live downtown and a lot of my neighbors all work on Wall Street and they seem to be making just as much money. Yeah, but they're on Wall Street. We just have no idea how, that's all. I mean, at least with cheese, we understand how. And if it's good cheese, then you buy it. And if it's not good cheese, they go out of business. That seems fair enough. That's basic. I, I'm not sure I understand what you're driving. Okay, good. In the Maybe media or entertainment does. industry, look at the gaming industry. I mean, relatively right. low overhead. And that, you know, people are making more developing games, either as a complement to a major motion picture, than the film or the television series is making. And this is prompting okay. this whole new explosion of, they're calling it transmedia, where digital advertising is, you know, our, our digital advertisers are being hired to market and promote feature films through games. So it's um, an area that we're looking at as we look at how the traditional media industry is changing. Post-production, visual special effects, that's a business that we could really own in New York because you don't need a big, giant studio to produce the games. It's, you know, it could be done in the corner office. Right. I think you are seeing the yeah. evisceration of the gatekeeper. I mean, having spent my 20s in network television news, right, right and then now being uh, intimately familiar with book publishing, another <laughs> rapidly imploding uh, old media industry in terms of what is happening is that now everyone can do it, or there is the sense that everyone can do it. The truth is that old guard still does aggregate more eyeballs than any of the individuals, but does that matter, right? I mean, we just heard a whole discussion about why it doesn't. Um, and I think that where this all ends up is anyone's guess, which is why I think it's a really interesting creative moment because so much destruction has already occurred in terms of traditional media and the jobs that used to be there. Um, and I think that there is a new frontier that's being explored, but no one knows yet who will be the masters of that universe and whether there will be lots of them or just a couple. And yeah, I think yeah. but, that, but it just struck me when I was listening to Seth talking about the end of the Industrial Revolution and how it wasn't about aggregating resources anymore and it wasn't about control. And then I thought, hold on a second. Who are the people who are becoming billionaires in this society? They are people who control resources. Uh, they are people who work on Wall Street. That doesn't sound to me like a post-industrial society in which the cheesemakers are making all the money and the people who are expressing here, here. themselves are making all the money. Right, and, and it's interesting, right? So Harvard Business School just 
announced that it's going to be admitting fewer of the finance types and more manufacturing uh, and tech, right? And I think, does, will that make any difference? I mean, I don't know that where we still see wealth going will change, right? I mean, Wall Street is, continues to be more resilient than anyone had expected. I was working in, at PIMCO and finance during those right. years, and no one would have expected that they are as robust today as they were uh, I know, wait, in many ways. Yeah. I don't think we can... Sorry, I was just going to say, the, the one thing that worries... But seriously, I mean, just to reiterate my point, where are the billions being made? They're being made because, because Chinese factories are demanding resources and people are making well, millions two, out of resources. Well, there's two sets, aren't there? I mean, there's that set of people who are making a lot of money, and then there's all these people who are using social media and, and yes. I mean, sports people, communication people, film stars. You know, Lady Gaga is probably the fastest income uh, accumulating... Uh, pop star in history. So, I mean, you know, you are... I mean, there, there are these two completely different sets, those who control scarce physical resources and those who control scarce creative resources in some sense. And I think um, you know, what, what we've created in global market terms means that if you, are, if you are a winner, your ability to do spectacularly well is greater than ever. Um, and, and, you know, that, that means you're getting people like Mark Zuckerberg or whatever making... Right. money earlier than anyone in history. Right, but, but a lot of that is going towards Hollywood-style economics where, where a few people make an enormous amount and then there's lots of out-of-word actors. And but I think if you look at how software engineers are being paid in Silicon Valley now, I mean, there's a very, very dramatic increase in their basic salary relative to share options now, and you're starting right. to see a winner-take-all kind of pay structure there. Where the so, I mean, I think there is something to be said for... You know, the fact that that's cyclical in nature. I mean, I do think that actually, you know, when we have discussions like this, sure. the one thing that we're, that we're leaving out is actually there is a whole world that is based, and, you know, all of us live in houses built by someone. There, there is a material world that all of the, I mean, it's a bit, I don't want to be obnoxious about it, but I, I feel as if we're a bit obnoxious about nothing about, you know, who makes money? My plumber makes a bloody load of money. My builder... <laughs> Has makes a lot of money. The guy who fixed, you know, I mean, you know, they are like gold dust, a decent builder and a decent plumber and so on. There is a whole world that is not Plumbers sitting in this Plumbers are very creative, room. we know that. But, but I mean, there's a whole world. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know who's going to keep building St. John the Divine, the church? You know, you need, you know, craftspeople and builders and, you know, there's a whole world out there that we don't talk about that, that actually, you know, construction companies make a load of money. And what's really important is that you get people in the boardrooms of, of a construction company who talk about modern agenda items like corporate social responsibility and environmental materials and so on and so forth. Instead of silos, that, that was the discussion in, in the first session yesterday and breaking down the silos, part of what I think my job is as a director is to go into boardrooms and break down those silos. Right. Okay. Well, I think we're going to turn to some questions. We haven't quite got to Matthew's original interesting point about capital structure, but I hope that maybe a question will turn on it. My name is Davia Temin, and I think there's a little bit of romanticism of entrepreneurialism that's going on here. I came from corporate life, ran marketing for GE Capital, 14 years ago started my own company. Doing very well, thank you very much. I think success, lots of people. But let me tell you, it is not pretty, it is not fun, it's inglorious. All the things that were provided for you before when you had a huge company, all of a sudden you're worried about who's taking out the garbage and who's going to, who, how, 
what color your wallpaper is going to be, from, from the sacred to the profane. So when we're talking about all this creativity, who's going to be doing all of this? And I know Grodin says we should unleash the creativity in all of us, which I think is true. How are we going to do that? Right. Well, it's interesting because that touches on my point about if we look out of that window, there's a lot of people who have got lots of freedom to be creative because the lights are on and, and they're being employed and it's all very nice. But um, if they had to run their own businesses, maybe they wouldn't be quite as... Yeah, I mean, I think carefree. the point I was making about scale, I mean, I do think you know, that we are going to have a lot of large organizations that will continue to be huge generators of wealth. And I think they, but they are going to have to reconcile themselves to the fact that to be cutting edge, you have to allow your people much greater freedom. I, mean, I think it's interesting, Netflix, for example, as I understand it, no longer has any rules on how much holiday you take as an employee. <laughs> I mean, because they trust you as an employee, they value your creativity. I was talking to the people who, um, uh, yeah, some people, other people sort of value that basically don't have any job description that you basically have to find a way and you get to, to, to actually be productive. And there's a, so changes in practices that are necessary to be competitive. But fundamentally, I go back to what I was saying about countries like Nigeria and others that have very high percentages of entrepreneurs in their population. I think that's a sign of dysfunction, that people haven't got any other alternative, and so they're doing it, rather than uh, they would rather have big companies that they can have some stability and some of the less inglorious uh, aspects that you talk about in entrepreneurship. And so the challenge in the developing world, I think, is as much to create an right. ecosystem where you can have well, in, a lot of, in some of the developing world, you have very small entrepreneurship mm. base, and then you have very big companies, but there's not much in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> About boards and the creativity in boards as being central to things, if you look at... Well, um, the model I know is the British public company and the idea of creativity there where you have an organism which is basically a 19th century one where all the responsibilities and the sheer work is a gallon going into a pint pot. So boards can't do what they're notionally set up to do now because they have tiny structures and tiny amounts of time, tiny amounts of time devoted to what NEDs actually can do, and so they become essentially fraudulent. They're increasingly led by the glorious entrepreneurial, not very entrepreneurial CEOs. But isn't, sorry, isn't that our fault? Because every time BP goes wrong or something, we say, well, how could that possibly have happened? They must oh, yes, very much. Ever again. Not they to recognise the absurdity of board structures. Second observation about diversity in boards. Diversity in boards is a distraction and always couched in the most absurd terms. The idea that if you have more brown people, more women, or younger people, you'll change everything. Not if all those people, notwithstanding their brownness, youngerness or genderedness all come out of the same cookie cutter which is called in Britain it would be Balliol uh, followed by Harvard MBA I mean, so, same social background same educational difficult territory here because but I suspect a lot of people in the same country. sectors too they'll all be <laughs> bankers anyway. they'll be lawyers and accountants okay. I mean look I'm a Wellesley educated Cambridge educated 
white woman. You know, I mean, you know, I'm probably as, as bad in a certain way if you look at it. <laughs> no, no, well, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I'm acceptable you know, in so many ways. You know, but <laughs> I mean, I'm, but I'm an acceptable face in a way of starting that process. Because actually, do I sound like any other Wellesley-educated, Cambridge-educated board director you've ever met? I'd like to meet her if, you, if, you, if I do. I mean, I think you know, part of what we have to do is it's a process. And so you need to be sort of in it to win it. So you need to look like an acceptable face that goes in there and then shakes it up from inside. Now, uh, you know, the other thing is, and, and not to get too technical, but in, Eng in, in, in the UK, when you are the chairman of a when you're the chairman, you're the chairman of the company. And in the U.S., you're the chairman of the board. So it's a slightly different structure. But, but one of the things about it is, here or there or anywhere else in the world, the chair sets the tone in the room. Now, you're going to have a different boardroom if you have sat with me in a board chaired by John Brown. 